Thank you so much, Pastor Mark, for that prayer supplication and also for leading us without the piano. And I thought you did a great job in leading us and singing praises to the Lord. I enjoy hearing the beautiful voices of God's children singing uh, praises to Him. I love Amy's playing, but uh, once in a while it's just good to tune in and, and hear each other singing praises to the Lord. Um, that's the way it was done for a long time, centuries after the institution of the church. This morning I'll ask if you will to turn in your Bible to Second Peter, if you haven't already, chapter 3, as we are closing out this series of messages in Second Peter. And um, you know, as I was uh, looking at the, the text and, and just considering where we've been as we have looked at this wonderful apostle, the leader of the church, the apostle Peter, I was reminiscent of a passage, uh, an episode in the ministry of Peter. We've gone back and captured vignettes of times in Peter's, uh, the Simon Peter's ministry with the Lord Jesus. And, uh, and, and I was thinking about in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, the same night that Jesus observed that uh, last Passover with his disciples, the night in which he instituted the Lord's Supper as we observe today, uh, that night prior to his arrest and his uh, crucifixion, uh, Jesus had called Peter aside and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like grain. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That you, when you return to me, when you turn again, you will encourage the brethren. And indeed, as we have looked at these two epistles given to us by the Apostle Peter, as we consider his, his leadership of the church and how he encouraged, Peter was an encourager. Beginning at the day of Pentecost and preaching those powerful messages, Peter was an encourager. He was an encourager to the other apostles. He was an encourager to that early church that would birth at Pentecost. He was an encourager to believers as they were dispersed uh, throughout uh, the region from Jerusalem due to the persecution. Peter was an encourager when he traveled in his own ministry and encountered others and shared the gospel. We, we know that Peter was indeed an encourager to the, the, the church, the family of God. He, in First Peter we saw, was an encourager to Christians in that first century who were facing uh, growing persecution and pain as a result of their, their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter was an encourager in Second Peter as we've seen in the face of growing uh, false uh, teachers and, and, and the number of false teachers and, and the apostasy that was beginning to infiltrate the church. Peter was an encourager as we'll see that even as the world faces what is called the day of the Lord, that day of judgment, that time of judgment, an awful time, Peter offers words of encouragement. And we look at that in chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter's talking about that day or that time period known as the day of the Lord and it's not a, a new thing to the church because you see the day of Lord of the Lord is, is made to reference in the Old Testament is spoken of in the Old Testament as a time when God would intervene in the affairs of man particularly in the Old Testament the nation of Israel and he would bring judgment you find that reference in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 10 
uh, through 12. You find it referred to again in the prophet Joel in chapter 2 of Joel. Verse 30 and 32. In Zechariah chapter 14 verse 1. You'll find references to the day of the Lord. But I want to take you to Malachi. Or you can just listen as I read. But you can also make a note in your Bible. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. Listen as the last prophetic book speaks about this great day of, of the Lord. He says for behold in verse 1 chapter 4. For behold the day is coming. Burning like an oven. Listen to the imagery. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. And in verse 5 of that chapter, he goes on to say, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet, speaking of John the Baptist, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Indeed, it was a dreadful day this day of the Lord. Almighty God unleashes His unthinkable destructive forces upon the, on the, upon the enemies of God, upon those who reject the Lord. And He does so, the Bible says, with great suddenness. And Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, in that uh, eschatological chapter, apocalyptic chapter, Jesus said that his coming would be sudden. It would be like, like a thief in the night. In 1 Thessalonians, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the day of the Lord. And, and in its suddenness, it's, it's going to appear suddenly uh, without notice, without sign in verse one of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Listen to how Paul the Apostle describes it in his writing. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. You hear how he describes it as a thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. In Revelation chapter 3, as Jesus has given that wonderful vision to John in, in the Revelation in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is saying, He says, Remember how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. However, if you do not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. It's, it's with that kind of suddenness that God will bring His great judgment upon those who disobey Him and who reject Him and who are enemies of the kingdom of God. But you see, God has a divine purpose in doing so. It's not just a random thing. God has warned all along for those who reject Him, those who, who choose not to believe in Him, those who, who are, uh, are adversaries to His kingdom. He makes it quite clear that He's going to bring this kind of judgment. And, and He does so for the purpose of justice. God is a just God. And He's always said He would bring justice, He would bring judgment upon sin. And so He has and so He will. But God also does so, not just to bring justice upon rebellious, sinful humanity, but He does so to vindicate His good name. God is good. He is holy. He is righteous. And, and he, he, he will only allow sin and sinfulness and rebellion to go on but so long, and then He acts he does so to vindicate His good name, but also God does so to bring glory to Himself. Because you see, something as awful and horrendous and terrible as judgment still brings glory to a holy God. When the all of creation sees in the day of the Lord that God does bring judgment 
upon sin. He will not tolerate sin to go on in the life of an individual without bringing judgment. He will not allow it in a nation and certainly upon the world. You might say that, that the day of the Lord could be looked at in two, from two perspectives. First, historically. We know that indeed there was a day of the Lord, or maybe you would look at it plurally. The plural days of the Lord when it came to the nation of Israel. A chosen people. A people that God had set apart to be His own people. And God had offered many blessings and many benefits. And all He said that you have to do is be faithful and follow Me. But then when they rebelled and their necks were hardened against God and they were stiffened in rebellion against God, we know there were days of the Lord that God had prophesied would come. And they certainly did. All the way back in the Old Testament in 722 B.C., we know that the day of the Lord came for the northern ten tribes of Israel in the form of a powerful barbaric empire called the Assyrians. And for those ten tribes that were brutally defeated and taken into captivity, that was a day of the Lord. God's judgment was indeed brought upon them. And it was a horrible day for them. And then again, you may recall in the Old Testament in 586 B.C., the day of the Lord, you might say, came upon the southern tribes of Israel, Jerusalem, in the form of that great, powerful, pagan Empire, the Babylonians, as they invaded the southern kingdom and absolutely destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and not only that, murdered many, many innocent people, slaughtered the Jewish people, ransacked the countryside, and took a, a, a sizable remnant of the Jews into captivity where they stayed for 70 years. Oh, yeah, listen, the day of the Lord certainly manifested itself in history for the Jews. You might even say that in A.D. 70, when the Roman Empire sent that mighty army against the city of Jerusalem once again, and, and, and again the city was absolutely torn apart and the temple of God was utterly destroyed and has to be rebuilt even today. The day of the Lord God had warned. He had sent prophet after prophet he had said, you can only sin against me and reject me and rebel against me and have a hard, stiffened neck against me, but so long until the day of the Lord will indeed come. But then also we have to think about this awful time of judgment from an eschatological perspective. There is an awful period of divine judgment that is coming upon the entire world. Not only the entire world, ladies and gentlemen, but it is coming upon the entire universe. When the judgment of God will ultimately, finally, totally be poured out upon all of creation. Sin will be absolutely obliterated. But what a horrendous thing it is. Scholars say that this final day of the Lord is a period of time that begins with the tribulation period, if you know eschatology and in the prophecies in, in Revelation chapter 6 at the beginning 
of the tribulation period when, when Jesus, the Lamb of God in heaven, is unrolling the scroll and he's breaking the seals and there are seven seals. And at the beginning of the uh, breaking of the seals is the judgment of God. There's a progression of awful judgments that are being broken. And after the six seals are broken and the seventh seal of judgment is broken, out of the seventh seal come seven trumpet judgments. And after that, seven bold judgments. It's like one wave of, of disaster after another wave of disaster is, is flooding the earth and, and there's death and there's plague and there's destruction and, and horrendous things. You go back and read as John is describing in this great prophecy of the judgment day of God in the, in the day of the Lord. He talks about the sun becomes black. Jesus described that even prophetically foretelling the, the day of the Lord and what it would be like. He said that the sun would be black as if a sackcloth were pulled over it and the moon would turn to blood red and then the stars, better still meteorites, would be falling from the sky like ripe figs falling from a tree that would be crashing to the earth and he said that that would be a horrible time the heavens the scripture says will be rolled back like a scroll and they're the greatest earthquake to ever occur in the history of the earth will shake this world all the foundations of the mountains the scriptures say will be absolutely moved and the islands of the sea will be moved out of their place in the day of the Lord culminates at the end of this time, at the end of time, as in that time that we know at the end of the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes and reigns for a thousand years, and then the great white throne, and then the final manifestation of this terrible, you say, how can it get any worse? With all these plagues and natural disasters and, 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 and cosmological disasters and, 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 and plagues and, and, and diseases and, and, and supernatural forces that bring pain and anguish. How, how can it get any worse? I'll take you back to verse 7 that we touched on earlier in the message last Sunday. In chapter 3, Peter says, but the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Do you remember in verse 6 when Peter was describing historically you know, the false prophets were saying, oh listen, there's no God's not going to intervene. Everything is going on the same that it was since the fathers died, the patriarchs died. Nothing has changed. God's disinterested. God's disengaged. He's, listen, he's not involved. He's not intervening. And Peter says, hey, don't forget God intervened in a miraculous and a divinely powerful way when he spoke this world into existence, when he separated the waters and caused the firmament to come between them. God stored up that water and in Genesis chapter 6, when man fell into absolute decadence, then God took that great reservoir of water. He told a, a faithful servant by the name of Noah to build an ark out of gopher wood. And when Noah and his family and two of every animal assembled in that ark and God sealed the door, God said to the the waters above and the waters below to come forth and it flooded the entire earth covering their tallest mountain and every living creature on the face of the earth perished. God just wasn't randomly placing water in space ladies and gentlemen. He's God. He understood what lay ahead. He understood what his judgment would entail. He understood the instrument by which he would use to bring such a vast judgment upon the world. 
But God promised Noah that he would never bring judgment by water again. But he didn't say, I won't destroy the world again. And Peter is describing for us right here in chapter 3, in verse 7, how the whole earth and, and the heavens were stored up. Stored up. The fire to be destroyed by fire. And that's what he's talking about there. Reserved for fire until the day. Where is all this fire? We know where all the water came from. Brothers and sisters, I'm not a geologist or a physicist, but let me tell you something. The crust of the earth upon which we live is 10 miles thick. That sounds pretty thick. Until you consider the entire mass and dimensions of the earth. It's really not that thick. But consider the fact that underneath this thin surface upon which we live and walk and have our being, let me tell you something, underneath this thin, relatively thin crust of the earth is a sea of molten hot lava. The interior temperature of the earth is 12,400 degrees and all it is is waiting to explode. And one day it will. Just by the same word that brought forth the torrents of water that covered the earth, God will bring forth fire. Consider the fact that the sun around which our earth orbits is a flaming gas ball at 9,900 degrees Fahrenheit. It's one of the smallest stars. And there are billions of stars throughout the galaxies around us. Consider the impact when God unleashes the, the molten fire from underneath the surface of the earth and then God causes the stars like light bulbs to begin to explode and, and burning gases penetrates the solar system as we know it. But consider the fact that's not the end of it. Understand, you say, how can God not just destroy the world but our solar system, not only our solar system, but our Milky Way, not only our Milky Way, but the whole universe, all the galaxies, all the stars, all the planets. How could that possibly be? Listen, God is God. He's the same God that by the basic structure of all creation caused a little tiny invisible, almost invisible, invisible particle known as the atom. To be the building block for everything in creation. Do you understand that the same God that can speak and atoms will collect and form molecules and then they'll form bodies and, and everything that is, is in the tangible physical universe. The same God that spoke into existence the formation of the atoms is the same God that can set the fuse. That would create one of the greatest atomic explosions ever experienced in all of creation. This is not science fiction. This is what Peter is describing. In the awful day of the Lord. Dr. John MacArthur speaking of that aspect of the physical destruction of the universe, the heavens and the earth. He said on that future day the noise from the disintegrating atoms of the universe will be deafening. Unlike anything mortals have ever heard before. What definite noise are you talking about, Dr. MacArthur? Look again at verse 10. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away. With what? A great noise. In the Greek, that word means like a sudden 
burst of noise like, like the, the whiz of an arrow or the crackling of something being destroyed instantly by fire. A great noise. And the elements, look at what he says, and the elements will melt with fervent heat every physical part of creation. Whether melted by intense, unimaginable flames or by the nuclear explosion that sets everything off, all the heavens and all the earth on that day of the Lord, that dreadful day of judgment, when God will judge all of creation. Of course, God will provide for his people. God will have already made arrangements for us. We need not fear the day of the Lord. Oh, we should respect it. And it should impact our lives and our perspective on the future and our perspective on those who are lost and walking in darkness and sin. But we need not live in fear. The people who need to fear the day of the Lord are those who do not know Jesus Christ, who reject Him and reject God and reject God's Word, and they are in the crosshairs of the target of God's wrath. They are the ones who should fear the day of the Lord, but not the people of God. Because it's interesting, in verse 11, Peter goes on to say, he says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, look what he says, and this is not a question there in verse 11. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's not saying, oh, shouldn't you be? No, he's saying, listen, knowing this, knowing this, that what God has in store for the, for, for the sinful world and the awesomeness of God's judgment, he said you ought to be absolutely godly people. You, it ought to have an impact upon you as you look forward to the day of the, of the Lord. Your conduct should be absolutely holy. Knowing that the God of the universe has chosen you to be spared from such a horrible judgment. Which brings us then as we look ahead in verse 12. He says, for us as believers, rather than dreading the day of the Lord, we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of the Lord, the day of God are not synonymous. The day of the Lord is that day, that time period when God intervenes with great and awful judgment upon those who are His enemies, if you will. But the day of God, it's a day of new beginning. It's what we live for. It's what we yearn for. It's what we, we look forward to that Peter describes there. Look in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Yes, indeed, God is going to destroy all of creation, the heavens and the earth as we know them. That's why it's almost kind of puzzling for me why God's people, people who are Christians, invest so much in earthly tangible things. They want to build big buildings and name them after themselves and have all these earthly monuments and have their estates and, and all the things that they accumulate. And I'm thinking, for what? Did you read what Peter said? 
All the high skyscrapers and all the, the Fort Knoxes of the world and all the, the impressive structures of man and, and all the armies, everything is going up in smoke. There'll be no, no survivors. But the, the beginning, the new beginning, the day of God, God is going to start. He will start over. He will create a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible tells us that. You can go back in Psalm 102. And listen, this is given prophetically by the writer of Psalms. And I think it's so, listen to what he says all the way back in Psalm 102. In verse 25, 26, let me just share that with you. He says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, all of them will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed you know how you wear a garment for so long and either it's out of fa style or fashion or it's just not suitable to wear anymore? You know, I used to love those old polyester leisure suits with the three foot wide collars, you know, and you wore the open flowery Hawaii shirts, you know. Oh man, I, I was dazzling, folks. You just can't imagine. I held on to my old leisure suits as long as I could. And my stacked heels, because they were in style too in the early 70s. And I, boy, I felt like I was about seven feet tall. Of course, I was dangerous to walk with. But you know, yeah, I'm not one of those that throws away clothes very often. And my wife has to kind of motivate me and help me along that way. But I know ladies, you probably keep clothes circulated better than, than we men do. But, but, but in speaking of creation, you know, the psalmist says, God, this world, this, the heavens, all that we see around us, It'll be just like an old garment. One day you'll cast it aside. You'll have no need for it anymore. Seems hard for us to believe, doesn't it? But it's the truth. And he says, and you'll create another. You'll, you'll make for yourself another one. Brand new. And that's what the psalmist says there. The, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65, 17. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. You see, the creation of the new and glorious universe is what we as God's people, and that's what Peter's trying to help those early believers to understand. He's wanting us to understand. Don't get too attached to this world. This is not your home. I've been challenging you throughout the series of messages in, in, in First and Second Peter, you know. That we must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency in order to embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. What things, what relationships, what possessions are you holding on to that are earthly, that are holding you down, that are keeping you from rising up to the spiritual potential that is in you? Do you talk more like a citizen of the earth than you do a citizen of heaven? Do you think more like a, like a, a, a person confined to the earth than you do a person who rises up on lofty praise to God to the things of heaven? Is your mindset and your perspective eternal and heavenly or is it temporal and worldly? This is not our home. It will be utterly destroyed. But you see, the utter destruction of the old makes way for the new. It makes way for the new. Verse 12, chapter 3, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved 
being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, Peter says, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's a new one. That's different. Because we've always talked about this world, this earth, this, this universe. We've always talked about it as being sin-cursed. It was perfect when God created it, but it didn't last that way too long. Because as soon as man and woman chose to disobey God, let me tell you, sin came. And not only did it affect man with the, the eternally damning penalty of sin... But the, even the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is groaning under the weight of being sin-cursed. But that's not the new earth. That's not the new heavens. The new creation will not be sin-cursed. It won't be tainted. It says right there, it is righteous in which righteousness dwells. I can't even imagine you can't go out of your door. You can't turn on your television. You can't hardly do anything without being affected by some form of sin. You think you can insulate your house. You can get Terminex to come in and take care of the bugs. But I tell you what, you can't keep the devil out. He's got sneaky ways to infiltrate your home and your family. And wherever you go in society, I don't care how good a Christian you are, you will encounter the effects of sin this is a sinful world, but not the new, not the new, not the new world, not the new heaven, not the new earth. In Revelation, that great prophetic vision given to Apostle John by the Lord Jesus in the next to the last chapter, Revelation chapter 21, listen to the words of John as he speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He sees in this vision, he sees it. Man, what that must have been for John. I can't imagine having a first century you know, vocabulary trying to describe futuristic things that he said, but he saw it. It was real because it was re revealed to him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And John said in, in chapter 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had what? Passed away. Also there was no sea, no more sea. Then I, John saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God, I like this, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no, nor sorrow, nor crying. There, will, there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Where does this wonderful place exist? It exists in the future. It's coming. It's real. It will be our home for eternity. And the, a, another glaring difference between the existing world, the, the earth and the creation around us, is the, and the new earth and the new heavens, is right now God's in heaven. His people are here. We worship Him and we have communion with Him by His Holy Spirit. But then that day will come when God will create the new heavens and He'll create the new earth. And down from heaven will descend that glorious new Jerusalem. It will be like the glorious temple of God. Why? Because the, the God Himself 
I can't even wrap my poor finite mind around what it'll be when the Shekinah glory of God and His power and dominion and all the heavenly host that goes along with God come down out of heaven and He perches Himself right in the midst of man on this brand new righteous field earth where we will live with Him forever and worship Him and serve Him. So what impact should this have? on those who are believers. And this talks, leads us to the preparation of its sanctified and righteous residence in this new heaven. Just knowing this, anticipating this, should have an impact upon us. You saw in verse 11 where Peter says, what, what manner of persons we ought to be holy in holy conduct and godliness. Oh listen, we ought to be a people who are filled with with hope. We ought to be a people who pray like the Apostle John. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ought to be praying on a regular basis. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll bring the day of the Lord and bring judgment upon this uh, universe that so deserves your just judgment because I know right on the heels of the day of the Lord is that great day of God when you will indeed bring everything to an end and recreate the heavens and the earth and you will instill, install me in my rightful place in your kingdom. Oh, come! That's why in verse 12 he says that they are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. How many Christians don't even, even know about the day of God? How many Christians even give a thought to the day of God? We get more excited about Christmas and I don't have anything against Christmas. We get more excited about birthdays and anniversaries and, and vacations. We'll talk more about those, those temporal passing events than we will give conversation to the glorious day of God. And yet Peter makes it quite clear it's real. Oh, listen, is your heart homesick for heaven? Is your heart homesick for this new home, this glorious place where we will reside in the very presence of God, this beautiful place that, could be, that, that goes beyond our comprehension, this glorious day in which the awesome presence of God will be with us? I know back in June I, I told many of you that I had the opportunity to help with... Uh, Working at one of uh, at, at a camp that our tribe, the Saponi tribe, has for uh, young people who are descendants of the Saponi tribe, and for a week we bring boys and girls who are descendants of the Saponi tribe to this place. It's a nice a campground at a at a, a lake shore, beautiful place, great opportunity to have a lot of fun, teach them things, and we take them to church or Bible school. They're taught the gospel every morning and 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 at night. So, but anyway, inevitably we'll get somebody that is there. There we call them first timers. And some of you may have been first-timers at a camp in your past. And I have had this experience. And I know Vicki Lawson, when we go to Caswell, sometimes we get those who are the first time there. And that first night, well, we had one little boy in Landon. Bless his heart. I mean, it hit bad. Sunset the first night of camp. He came apart at the seams. He was a mama's boy. Hadn't been away from home. Hadn't really spent time away from mom. And I'm going to tell you, the darker it got, oh, I thought that poor thing. And, and I was trying to get him through the first night of Bible school. He just, oh, he was screaming and crying. I want to go home. I want my mama, you know. And, and uh, I'm sick. I feel terrible. And, oh, and finally got his mom on the phone. And, I said, and, and she, she said, now look, you, son, you're there. You're going to have to stuff it out. It'll be good for you. You'll enjoy it. Oh, man, he was a... After I, she got off the phone. He's kicking the air. This is the worst day of my life. 
And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not really having a picnic myself. <laughs> homesick. And I've been homesick before. I can understand. That's why we try to be as sympathetic and empathetic with those first timers as we can. But I'll know one thing. Each day, each day, he was looking ahead. What was he living for? Friday. Because he knew that was the day his mama was going to pick him up. We gave an evaluation to all the campers and, and, and asked them, you know, did you enjoy yourself? And will you come back next year? We got one that said, nope, definitely not. <laughs> and we knew who that was. I say that humorously, but, but, but knowing, knowing from the Word of God what the Lord has in store for you and me as His people. The sin-tainted and saturated world with its violence and chaos and immorality in which we live. This is not our home. This is not the way it's going to be. God is holy. He is just. He has a plan. And the plan involves judging this world. Bringing it to an end. We've been looking parallelly with the book of Jude. That little short book there. And, and, and so Jude also gives words of encouragement as he closes the, that book. In verse 20 of Jude, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up for your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. And on some, have compassion, making a distinction, but others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the, the garment that is tainted. And as we think about that, we have a purpose. In the time that we wait, did you hear what Jude was saying there? Not only do we have a responsibility to be a people who are hopeful, not only do we have a responsibility as we look ahead to this glorious new home that is, God is, is going to create for us, that we'll live with Him forever. We should be a hopeful people. We should be a virtuous people. We should be people who live with godliness. It should make a distinction in who we are amongst all the rest of the world. But then also we ought to be an evangelistic people as well. Because that's what Peter is saying. Look at verse 15 in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Look what he says. And an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Why is the Lord taking so long? The false prophets and the apostates were saying, oh, listen, God's not coming. He's disinterested. He's disengaged. Everything's been the same. Listen, if God was coming, why has He waited so long? Why has He waited so long? And we understood that when Peter told us in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all, not every person born on the face of the earth when he says all. But when he says all, every soul that God has predetermined that he would save through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not a single one of them, like the parable Jesus taught of the good shepherd who had a uh, hundred sheep. He had 99 in the fold. What did he do when one was missing? He didn't close up the gate. He didn't say, well, 99 is good enough. Listen, God won't close the gate of time until that last soul comes to Christ. But I guarantee you it won't be a second beyond that. And you don't need to tempt the patience of God. 
If you feel God's Spirit convicting your heart of your sinfulness and you've not made that decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ to follow Him and you feel the stirring of the Lord, don't always anticipate that you'll have tomorrow. Don't just assume that you'll have next week. This may be the last day you'll have on the face of this earth. Listen, when it comes to evangelizing, knowing what waits for us ought to motivate us to tell others about Jesus Christ. That ought to fire us up. Because we know that God is waiting for a purpose. What if? What if that last soul that God is waiting to bring to Christ is your neighbor? What if that person is in your workplace? What if that person is in the school that you attend? What if they are a member of your family? What if when the Spirit of God leads you to humble yourself and go to that person with genuine concern and you share the gospel and that person is on their knees and they're praying and receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and before they can say amen, everything comes to an end. Because that was the last soul. The very one. Have you ever thought about that? What if when you take the time to go to that person that you know doesn't have Jesus Christ and share the truth of the gospel, what if that person is the last one on God's divine list? Whew. It ought to motivate us. I like how Jude put it. Over there in Jude, he says we ought to be snatching them Pulling them out of the fire. There are so many people that you know, and I know, ladies and gentlemen, who are just a breath away from hell. And if God is burdening your heart to go and talk with them, don't you assume that they won't listen to you. If God convicts you and leads you to go talk to them, talk to them. Share the truth of the gospel. I'd much rather offend somebody attempting to share the gospel than know that that person went into eternity without Christ. I need to wrap up. Final point I want to make to you in this text that we look at tonight, uh, this, this morning, is the apostles or the shepherd's final exhortation. As I told you before, the second Peter, the epistle, second Peter, is Peter's swan song to the church. Kind of like Second Timothy was for the Apostle Paul. And, and Peter knows this. It's no surprise. He knows. As, and, and you know, you can tell as you're writing a letter, as you're writing a story, as you're writing, you can, you can sense, as, even preparing the sermon, I can sense there's an end. I know that's hard for y'all to believe, but I do. <laughs> and, and, and you know, Peter, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and being guided, I'm sure in his spirit, he's thinking, I'm getting to the end. I'm getting to the end. And Peter knew what waited for him. He knew that as soon as he finished the job that God had given him, there was a, a, a cross waiting on him. There was a literal martyr's death waiting on him. And yet Peter didn't finish the book by saying, Oh, listen, y'all pray for me. I'm scared. Listen, I want y'all, hey, somebody help me. Send a defense attorney. No, no. Peter was concerned about the people that Jesus had told him, You shepherd them. You tend them. You care for them. He encouraged them to the very last. As you look with me there, chapter 3 verse 15, an account that the long suffering of the Lord is salvation as our beloved brother Paul according to wisdom given to him has written to you as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things. Peter's saying, listen, I'm not the only one writing about the day of the Lord, the end times, the coming of the new creation. No, no, Peter says, listen, even my beloved brother, Peter, is, is 
is, is, is elevating Paul to an equal position as a fellow apostle. And I think it's interesting because if you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, in Galatians, Paul, Paul talks about having to confront Peter. Now, Peter's the leader of the church. And Peter and a group of his buddies were, were opting not to eat with the Gentile believers. That's wrong. You can't have that kind of distinction. God doesn't de you know, delineate between Christians. And, and Paul knew that. And imagine, now he's a newcomer. He's going to the, to the leader of the church, Big Peter. And he's going to confront him. And he did, in love. And Peter relinquished. He repented and he changed his ways. Now, I would have thought there, Peter said, you know, that blasted Paul. He didn't embarrass me in front of my friends like that. Now, I know I was wrong, but doggone it, he hurt my, you know, hurt my good reputation and everything. I'll never mention him. I won't, give him, I won't write him a letter of reference. <laughs> Not so. You capture the heart of Peter right here when he gives time to recognize the Apostle Paul. And Paul's, Paul probably, um, commentaries tell us that Paul has already passed on. He, he also faced execution for his faith. So Paul's letters are circulating throughout Asia Minor where Peter's writing this letter and his previous letter. And so he's talking about, and he says, in, in this, he says also in verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which, in which are some things hard to understand. That's true. Nobody can fully understand the rapture that Paul talks about. Nobody can understand the, 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 the role of the Antichrist that Paul talks about. We, we don't understand. all. Paul had some deep theology. But look what he says. He acknowledged some of those things that Paul wrote. You know, they're good, but they're hard. Which those who are untaught and unstable, that's the heretics, that's the apostates, they twist to their own destruction. Oh, they thought they were twisting Paul's words for their own favor and their own benefit. Didn't realize, ignorantly, they were twisting the very truth of the word of God to their own demise. And Peter points that out. But look what he says. Don't miss this last phrase in verse 16. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. That's so important. Because you see what Paul is doing? I mean, Peter's doing? Peter is elevating, acknowledging to the church that the epistles of Paul, written as he said by the wisdom given to him divinely by God, the epistles of Paul are scripture. He wrote them under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You can't do a better credit to somebody in the life of the church than what Peter did for Paul there. In verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. You know what was burdening Peter's heart? False teachers, false preachers, false prophets, apostates that would mislead God's people. And he gives a, his final warning to them. Be on the alert. Don't let them cause you to stumble. Don't let them cause you to be ineffective in the kingdom of God. And then Peter closes in verse 18, as many biblical books do, with a doxology. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Peter's not glorifying himself. He's not saying, look at all the things I've done. Look what I've sacrificed for the church. Look how Jesus gave me assignments. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's ending up this wonderful letter to the church and saying, To Christ! Our Savior, to Him be the glory. To Him be the power forever. And as we close out, Second Peter, we also close out Jude 
And Jews not to be outdone. And he had a wonderful doxology of his own in verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of, our, of his glory with exceeding joy. Folks, isn't that a wonderful reality? The same precious Lamb of God, the Son of God, who was able to secure your salvation by His blood on Calvary's cross through His resurrection and ascension into heaven. The same Jesus is able to secure you, keep you from stumbling in your walk with God and your faith. This same Jesus is not only able to keep you from stumbling, but He will deliver you all the way into the presence of God. Where we will experience exceeding joy. And in verse 25, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, 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 in this life, in this world, in this church, throughout the kingdom of God. Give glory to God. Lift Him up. Exalt Him. Because when we step into that glorious new creation and our new home, the new earth, in the very presence of God, for eternity we will be praising Him. We will be exalting Him. We will be giving Him glory. And we will be exalting His wonderful name and bowing down and worshiping Him. And I say, isn't He worthy? He's worthy of praise. Amen? He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of all things that God's people could deliver unto Him for His glory and His dominion forever and forever.